back to Training Tuesday podcast. It's great to be with you, a place where recruiters can collaborate. We can share success and stay focused. Last week in March 2018, it is my honor to be able to spend some time with you. It's going to be a short podcast this week. Really, I have one question for you. How many people did you ask to join the Army National Guard last week? How many people did you ask to join the Army National Guard last week? That's the end of the podcast. Well, it could be, really. I mean, that's it, right? That After all that we go through and all the things that we talk about, at the end of the day, it comes down to how many people did you ask to join the Army National Guard last week? And out of that, how many of those people said yes and we could put them in boots? So that's that's the heart of what we're doing here, is we are creatively developing our skills and our craft so that we can ask more people, ask more qualified people. We can put ourselves in front of more people and we can press on. Uh, then when we have the opportunity, we can meet with those prospects and we can uh, communicate in a way that uh, fully communicates the Army National Guard story. We do not want uh, someone who needs the Army National Guard to not take advantage of the opportunity because of the way we approach them, the things that we talked about, the way we communicated the story. We do not want to be what hinders them from taking advantage of the opportunity, changing themselves generationally, setting their families up for success. Uh, we need to make sure that we are doing everything well so that if they choose not to join, that's completely fine. But it wasn't because of anything we have done. We were excellent. So this week we're going to begin with our 79 Tango tune-up. We are in the NGPAM 6011, a new segment this week. We finished our features last last week. This week we're starting in Section 2 on time management. Uh, we're going to get into the more specifics of this next week. The first couple paragraphs really are just introductory to this concept of time management. But I think it was important that we just run through the doctrine, the doctrine that we have been given on time management. The first paragraph has to do with just a general statement and then the second paragraph talks about the principles of time management. So we have a general statement and principles that we're going to cover this week. Uh, and then we're going to start getting into the meat of it next week. Very important. Just a really critical thing. You know, if you listen to the Director 54 interviews, a lot of them, a lot of the achievers from across the country talk about, you know, because one of the questions I ask them is, you know, what is it? What did they have to overcome? What did they develop personally that helped them to be successful? And many of them talk about time management, being able to regulate themselves, set priorities, work through a good plan with time management. So paragraph 2-5 general says, early and careful planning is the key to successful recruiting. This section offers guidance to help recruiter retention NCOs attain and maintain high levels of productivity through complete planning. Adherence to this guidance will, A, help supervisors develop attainable goals that will meet the needs of supported units and organizations. B, focus recruiting retention NCOs efforts on the most productive activities in times of day. And C, show recruiting retention NCOs how to plan their activities to establish efficient schedules that will help make maximum use of their resources, provide adequate time off from duty, and make allowances for the many factors that affect their time. Paragraph 2-6, Principles of Time Management. Recruiting and retention efforts are affected 
by the availability of the persons to be recruited and those who will help the recruiting program. In addition, the requirements for early MEPS processing appointments, evening MET site testing, and evening appointments with prospects, parents, families, and civic, civic social organizations often make 8 to 5 Monday through Friday hours impossible. Supervisors will monitor their recruiting retention NCOs schedules closely to ensure that they a schedule periodic leave b adhere to a relatively normal work week with one or two days off per week average and that they do not work consistently long hours <laughs> oh, part of this just cracks me up and c are not merely maintaining an office presence during eight to five hours and also keeping early morning late evening and weekend recruiting and retention commitments this is an artificial counterproductive effort that needlessly builds stress, leads to burnout, and has adverse effects on the soldier's health, productivity, morale, and relationships with family members. Well, there we have the general guidance. Now, I know some of you are are scoffing against that a little bit, kind of like in my mind, I was thinking, wow, this, you know, we do work long hours a lot of times. This time of year, you know, we're in harvest. Uh, you know, when it when it's time to harvest and the, the fields are ripe, we're out there with our machinery and we're working hard and we're going to work till the harvest is in. Come June, hopefully your harvest is done and we can go back and, and take the ruck off like Command Sergeant Major Dave Eustace talks about and regroup a little bit. But right now we have to make hay while the sun's shining. That's kind of the euphemism I hear around here sometimes. But make hay while the sun's shining. It is harvest season and you must be working. But, you know, it's Easter weekend. Take some time. You know, you're going to have the opportunity for a couple days to take the take the rock off and spend some time with your family. Make sure that you disengage. When you have the opportunity, disengage and, uh, and re-engage with your family. So good general guidelines for us as we begin that section. <laughs> Our leadership lesson comes out of the ADRP 6-22. We are in Chapter 6 which is leads others, uh, really, uh, this is in part three of this manual, competency-based leadership for direct through strategic levels. We have worked through a lot of information uh, using compliance and commitment, methods of influence, application of influence, dealing with resistance, providing purpose and motivation, building and sustaining morale. And we are in a, in a section right here that is titled Resolving Conflicts. Uh, two paragraphs on resolving conflicts. Well, I was a little disappointed as I've studied through this today because it really doesn't tell you how to work through context, conflicts. It just says you should. But let me go through the paragraphs and then we'll, we'll talk about it just briefly. Paragraph 6-35, conflict is the process in which one individual or group perceives that another individual or group negatively affects their interests. Conflict does not require the involvement of two people, nor is it necessarily founded in reality-based or actual circumstances. One person may be in conflict with another without the second person even realizing it or being at fault. As a leader, it is important to identify and resolve conflict before it affects personal and organizational functioning and effectiveness. So the, the, the meat of that is, is hey listen leaders you must deal with conflict 
And, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to, uh, and it doesn't give us many specifics, does it, about how to do that. Paragraph 6 36 says conflicts can be categorized as work based, such as clarifying roles, competing with resources, or generating different solutions to the same problem, or individual based, such as personality differences, annoyances, and tension. Work based conflicts can be beneficial to organizations, resulting in improved decision making, elimination of redundancies, and increased commitment. However, Individual-based conflicts can result in lower morale and effectiveness of the individuals as well as the organization. So it talks about two different types of conflicts. Those at work, those are the individual-based. You know, we have all of the family conflicts that can come up, you know, and then we have all of those that are in, encompass work. Well, when we're recruiting and we deal with, the more people you deal with, the more opportunity for conflict, the more we need to be able to identify it within our own hearts, our own minds. Uh, we d- identify it in our relationships with others, and the more we can uh, deal with it. This manual does not, to this point, and I haven't seen any other uh, support in this manual for this, but we just doesn't give us much info on how to deal with conflict. Uh, it's a big deal. You know, I, I, uh, I spend uh, five days a week as a counselor. I spend a lot of time in marriage counseling and in conflict. Uh, right now I'm doing some arbitration negotiations within a, a law enforcement agency between some of the people in the agency. Uh, listen, if you are in, if you're in crisis with your family, if you have a marriage crisis or family crisis right now, I don't charge for my counseling. I am on staff with an organization that, uh, that pays for my time and I would be more than happy to meet with you maybe over Skype or Zoom and to help you work through conflict. I spend a lot of time doing it, and as much as I dislike it, you know, that's kind of where I found myself, and I really uh, I really have been able to help a lot of people. So uh, I say all that. To if Listen, if you're, in a, if you're in a marital crisis right now, do not hesitate to call me. I would love to spend some time with you and your spouse and or whoever the conflict's with and help you work through, uh, through that. So I uh, just wanted to put that out there because there's not a lot of data in this manual on how to handle conflict, but it's a big part of our life, isn't it? Well, I kind of rushed through the first two segments, uh, hoping to leave myself some time for chapter 14, chapter 14 of our uh, Secrets of Question-Based Selling by Tom Fries. We've been working through this book. We're in chapter 14. A lot of good stuff so far, but this chapter has been very, very profitable to read through and to think through, and there's some direct application for us that we're going to hopefully get to in this segment. Chapter 14 is titled, Reengineering the Elevator Pitch. So when we hear the term elevator pitch, hopefully you understand what that is. It's a short pitch that you might give to somebody if you happen to be in the elevator with the number one prospect in your high school and you had uh, 30 seconds or a minute to, to tell them about the Army National Guard and you would have prepared this pitch so that you could communicate effectively, communicate all the things that you wanted to, you would want to tell them. And and so it's kind of like dump trucking really, but it's a, it's really just a sophisticated dump trucking where you have calculated ahead of time what a specific things would come out of the dump, dump truck that would be most beneficial. And he's, he calls this chapter Reengineering the Elevator Pitch and basically starts out by saying, hey, listen, stop elevator pitching. 
It, it's not helpful. It's not what it's not what you should be doing with that minute or two minutes. Um, and so I'm going to go through this chapter, and again, I think it's going to be very helpful for us. Uh, please buy the book, Question-Based Selling by Tom Fries, and read the book. It's got just great stuff in there. We need to be reading, sharpening our skills. We need to be developing our, our craft. And in this segment of this podcast is not enough to do that. You know, it's just a catalyst, really. I'm a conduit to bring resources to you and a catalyst for thoughts and to, to kind of spur you on and motivate you. Uh, but you must be doing some of that work on your own. Hopefully you have the book and you're going through it with us. We are on page 241 with secret number 129. It says, opening with an elevator pitch about the company or product puts a salesperson or sales organization in an extremely weak position. Uh, If you're in the elevator with a top applicant or top prospect in your high school, or let's say say there's one person, uh, one teacher in your school that's kind of been uh, given some pushback. You've really struggled to get in some of the classrooms because of this one teacher. And you find yourself on an elevator with this one teacher for two minutes. What are you going to say? And he says, listen, if you just unload on them, you have put yourself in a very weak position. And this also relates to every sales call we make or every presentation that we make. You know, if we if we start out with this elevator pitch or this what we would call in the military a bluff, bottom line up front. That in the civilian sales world is really not a good idea. Now, if we're corresponding and we're making sure we're having clear email traffic or something, great. But if you have an opportunity to spend a minute or two with some uh, you know, very high-value high target and, and, and you start with the bottom line up front, you might, uh, you might have uh, wasted the opportunity. So we kind of have to discard that mentality when we start thinking through the the elevator pitch. Secret number 130 says, starting with the elevator pitch is the quickest way to commoditize one's value proposition. For Pete's sake, I had to look those words up. I didn't even know what that meant, to commoditize. But I I, I left it in here to talk about just because I thought it was good. Commoditize is really turning turning, a... ourselves our product our company into a commodity just another product you know we're now we're on the shelf with everybody else it has no face it's has no particular specific thing that draws attention to it you know we we're just going to fit ourselves uh, on the shelf with everybody else i think is kind of what he's trying to say so we have to be careful the elevator pitch we think in our mind, hey, this is going to set us apart and differentiate us from all the other voices and competition out there, all the other branches of service, all the other options that a, a young person might have after high school. But what it does is it just kind of blends them all together and we just, just obscures everything that we really want uh, to do to separate ourselves out and to, to have clarity. You know, so, so the elevator pitch tends to obscure things. Okay, he, he gives us a couple acronyms, so we love acronyms. Uh, SPA versus PAS, and that's, uh, if you can think about SPA versus PAS, uh, that's the heart of the whole chapter. SPA, the S stands for solution, P for problem, and A for alternatives. He says in the traditional sales model, and, and a lot of the conversations we have, we think, uh, we think about the solution, the problem, and the alternatives. And if we were going to do an elevator pitch, we would want to come right up front and say, hey, listen, this is the, this is the solution, and this, and this is how it works, and it will solve all these problems. 
and then deal with the alternatives. And these are the way the other people might solve these things. And so we put the solution right up front. We're thinking that will capture their attention. They'll will receive more attention and focus. Uh, if we start a sales interview or an appointment with an applicant, maybe we'd just start talking about the National Guard and, and work through some of the features, and we'd, we'd give them a very condensed overview. And he says, listen, that's just, well, one of the things he says is that uh, he has concluded that the reason sellers gravitate so naturally to the SPA approach is because it's easier to start a conversation by talking about what we know, our solution, the Army National Guard, than what we don't know, the customer's problems. He says, you know, the reason that young recruiters dump truck is they get nervous, and so they start talking about what they know, and that's the Army National Guard. That's their story, them, their experience. And he says, we just have to really work hard, train ourselves, and and just practice self-control. We just got to shut up for a minute and, and make sure that we don't, we don't uh, respond with nervous energy in that manner because that's really defeating our whole purpose and our intent on this uh, appointment. So we need to rearrange the acronym. And he says we need to arrange it to PAS, uh, Problem, Alternatives, and Solution. That we talk about the problem, their problem. We talk about alternatives to solve their problem. And then we talk about our solution. Now, you know, we'd say, man, hopefully they listen that long. <laughs> and, and the whole point of question-based selling is that we are asking uh, diagnostic questions. We're working those questions in a way that is creating more curiosity, right? And that's the whole fundamental of this. We're creating more curiosity. We're drawing them into the conversation. And we're building rapport. We're developing a bond with them. And as we do that, it will they will be gaining interest by the time we get to the solution. They will have gained some momentum and created more of an interest to the solution than they ever had before we began. And I, the more I read about this, I, I think it's not just hypothesis. You know, I think it's very, uh, I think I think it's very true, and something that we should consider strongly. So he says typically. What, uh, what this would look like is because I have this problem, which the alternatives don't solve as effectively, that's why I'm going to choose to purchase or implement this particular solution. So because so in the mind of the applicant, they're thinking, because I have these problems or this problem or this goal or this, uh, this plan, uh, and, and after thinking about the alternatives which don't seem to quite as effectively help me, I'm going to choose the Army National Guard as my particular solution. Okay, so we have a P plan. I've considered the alternatives, and I have chosen this solution. He says that there's a hidden benefit to this, to working through this, trying to understand the problem, to being drawing that, drawing that out, diagnostic questions, as chapters 2 and 8 really went through this, this mindset. So review chapters 2 and chapters 8. But he said the hidden benefits are that it develops a bond. As I am asking good questions, not just trite questions, but I'm asking good, informed questions, and I'm and I'm dialoguing with that person. There's a bond that's created as they are expressing the, the things that they're wanting to do. It's developing that bond, and it's creating a rapport. So as we think about rapport building, which is, you know, in our in our training rapport building is critical but as we think about that we're thinking about that 
in light of I'm, I'm building rapport as I'm working to understand their particular circumstance. Secret number 132 says bonding with prospective buyers on what's most important to them is significant because that's what allows them to begin to trust you. He says, after all, uncovering potential problems is what ultimately creates sales opportunities. So as we're dealing with an applicant, as we're uncovering potential plans and goals and ambitions and motives and, and their values and, and we're working questions and drawing that out, as we uncover those potential things, that's what ultimately creates an opportunity for us to to show them how the Army National Guard can benefit them, right? So this fits right in with the way we should be thinking about this already. Secret 133, you bond with prospects by focusing your attention on their problems, not on your solutions. Now, our solutions can be complicated, and, ours, and we have lots of solutions, and we're excited about our solutions. And, the, and, you know, that's why we say don't dump truck. Don't focus on your solution. You bond with your prospect by focusing your attention on their problem. And then very subtly and with craft, you bring a solution. So, so that's kind of the general overview of the chapter. But the heart of it, the real benefit for us is even in a little more sp- precise thinking about that conversation. He says it's not enough to just come up with uh, with general problems. And what we really need to work through is trying to find the implications of those problems. And this is a we've talked about this concept throughout the book, but the implications of the problems. And he uses a an example of uh, selling water pumps. And this was very helpful and really kind of clicked with me as he went through this with this uh, scenario. So let's say you have a business, you build water pumps, you sell water pumps. And the water pumps are typically used for basements that have flooded. So you you have a scenario where basements have flooded, you sell the water pump, and so now you're you're trying to have a conversation with somebody whose basement is flooded. He says, water in the basement is a problem, but they buy water pumps because the potential implications that could arise as a result of having a flooded basement. So yes, having water in your basement is irritating, but why? Well, it's the potential implications of that. He says the more that you can think through what are the implications of having water in your basement, the more able you're going to be able to to communicate them the value of your water pump. And so he went through a short exercise. He says, listen, let's list the top 10 implications of homeowners with water in their basement. And I'm going to list these just so you can think about them because I think they're going to they're going to spark a little thought about our features as well. So here are the top 10 implications of homeowners with water in their basement. Uh, it causes structural damage to the home. Uh, it damages personal property. It creates mildew or odor issues. It could present health or safety risks. It could affect other systems in the house like your AC, your, your electrical, your, your heating system. Uh, likely cause a huge inconvenience. Uh, cl- getting it cleaned out of there it presents an insurance hassle. It increases stress within the household. Now, now the family is living in this context, and there's new stress added to the relationship. And number nine, it reduces the homeowner's property value. If you, if this is a problem, and maybe it, and uh, maybe it's created a problem down in the basement there that reduces the property value. And number ten, ended up costing the homeowner lots of money. 
So those are the implications, the implications of having water in the basement. He says it's, you can't just go up to somebody and say, uh, why is flooding in your basement a problem? Kind of this general probing question. That's kind of what we're taught is to ask these kind of general probing questions. Why is flooding in your basement a problem? Well, it's just going to irritate the homeowner. I mean, they're going to look at you like you have two heads. Uh, they're going to, I mean, they're, they're thinking of things. They know you can think of things. And they, they, what they know is that they have a cheesy salesman standing at their door when you ask a question like that. Um, he says the prospects are already forming impressions. So asking clueless questions will quickly reduce your credibility. We do that sometimes when we start our initial appointments. We ask questions that are they're kind of just cheesy questions. They're just not, they're kind of clueless questions. They're not real helpful. They don't show that you understand where this applicant's coming from, the problems that a, an 18-year-old's facing when they're thinking about life and the complexity of the decisions and what they're going to do. And, and so he says, the more you can work through the implications of some of these things ahead of time, the better your questioning is going to be. Secret 134, raising potential implications creates one of the greatest opportunities for sellers to establish credibility early in the sales process. Again, you're, you're going to be able to connect, uh, build rapport through these questions. Secret number 135, when prospective customers form the impression that you might be able to help them, they lower their defenses and start helping you to help them. And they're, they're now open to that conversation. And you say, what is, what's the biggest concern about having water in your basement right now? And let them dialogue and think through that. And they say, you know, we got a bunch of stuff down there. And say, yeah, man, I, I can understand that. Is it affecting your heating or air conditioning systems at all? And all of a sudden, we've we've had now a dialogue, and we've actually presented because because uh, we've thought through some of the implications. We've actually we've actually introduced a problem that we can help them so solve. But we've done it just in a dialogue way. We've added we've. We've gained credibility, and we've uh, increased the value of our solutions, which is ultimately what we're trying to do. So I was thinking just briefly, and, and really my encouragement to you this week is for you to think through and to do some practical activities, maybe in your office, but to take all of our features and benefits and to kind of work through the implications of them. And I did that just really quickly. I did it with the first one, training. So if you think about T for training as a feature of the Army National Guard, well, what are the implications, positive, negative, in relation to training? Well, if you get training, there's more job opportunities in the civilian world. If you get more, if you get training through the Army National Guard, you can start in the civilian world at a higher wage. Oftentimes you can start, you don't have to start at the bottom. Uh, number three, you can be of greater value to an employer because of the diversity that you have, because you've learned uh, more than you've learned a skill and they're going to teach you a skill. Now you may have diversity to offer. Number four, you can pick and choose within the company because you have diversified your skills. Number five, it saves you time and money to be retrained in the civilian world. Uh, so you can show up at a company and you're immediately uh, profitable to them because you don't need to be retrained. Number six, you're able to communicate the language during a civilian interview. And we know this is true. Every trade has its own language. And you're going to get asked some specific type questions about that particular trade or skill. And so if you have already been trained, you can know the language you're going to be able to communicate in a very profitable way during the interview. Number seven, all your eggs are not in one basket. You always you always can diversify. Because you can diversify, you've no, 
you know skills in different trades, you've been trained, uh, you're not going to have to rely on one particular skill set. Number eight, often the military is using technology that civilian companies are just getting. You know, that was my case in, the, in like the 80s and 90s that we were using computer system things. The civilian world were just getting. And so and the, a lot of the communication means, you know, were technologies that the civilian world was also developing, but we were, we were able to use them as well. So you can take that training with you to your civilian world. Number nine, save the company money because uh, they don't have to train you. Number 10, you always have a fallback trade. You know, if your college plans and your career plans don't work out or something happens, you always have a trade to fall back on, this skill that you've learned. Okay, so I just did that short exercise to help us to think about what are some of the implications of training so that if training comes up in a, in a point, we can ask some questions. You may say something like, this training might be exciting for you and you're going to learn a good skill. Have you ever thought about how much a civilian company is going to appreciate you coming with this skill? And you might not even have to start at the bottom. Would advancing in the pay scale within a company help? You might say something like, it's hard enough to find a job nowadays, but if you can come to the company with two or three skill sets and the training that's already been provided, do you think they're going to hire you versus someone who has to be trained? Uh, or, you know, it's one thing to get a job, but man, as the markets change and our economy changes... You know, companies often have to lay off. Do you think that uh, someone with multiple skills and diversity within the company are going to be the first or the last person to be laid off? Again, we're just we're just taking these things and and working with them to work through the implications uh, to help them see the greater value. So if they're interested in training, then also we can take that and we can we can expand it. And we can begin opening it up so they see the implications. And the more implications you talk about, and the more things that you bring to them. As we dialogue with them, the greater the value of that thing that can help with the training, which is the Army National Guard. And you're the solution at that point. Okay, that's the so we, we made it through uh, the, the problem area, the P. Uh, we still have to talk about the alternatives, the A and the solution S in this chapter. So I'm going to have to put that off till next week. So we will dive into the A. But think about each one of the features to, to go through some of the implications so that you can have thought through what are some of the implications. If they're interested in training, well, well man, there's so many implications of, of what the value is to them if they get trained in the, in the Army National Guard and they take that to the civilian world. And we need to be the instrument. We need to be the, the one that helps them understand the implications of that solution. So it's good stuff. Hopefully uh, another tool you can put in your tool bag and help you to, to have more confidence when you go into your appointments and you start working through this process with your prospects. You know, ultimately, we're putting people in boots. That's our job. Mission complete. That's our only option this year. Mission complete. And so keep pressing on. I always close with a quote from King Solomon. It says, if the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. This is Retired Mass Sergeant Siggins, out. <laughs>